Resident aliens, I want to I, I spoil this for you. I, I know that I probably shouldn't, and I should be very obtuse until the very end, because you're going to hang on to the very end, but I'm afraid some of you might nod off. So, I want to be very obvious about what we mean when we say resident aliens. I want you to remember with me that when Jesus comes proclaiming, preaching, he begins in all four of the Gospels the same way. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn your life around, change, get your life in order with what God's will is because God is coming to rule and to reign, to restore, to resurrect. And that time, he says, is at hand. We might say, it, some translations say it, it's, it's near to us, it's, it's knocking at the door, it's here almost. And then throughout the scriptures as we continue to read in the New Testament, it's revealed to us that though the kingdom isn't here in its fullness, though Jesus is not visibly reigning and there still is sin and separation and death and wickedness out in the world, that God has begun something unique and new in Jesus himself. Namely, he has set apart a people, a kingdom people, and that church is you. Good news, right? I mean, that's good news. You should be excited about that. Already nodding off, man. I'm only like two minutes in. We should be excited about that. That means that God's grace, we're not waiting for that good news to come. We're beginning to, to experience the anticipation and the hope that we have as within the church of God we see something new being given birth. Where enemies become friends, where forgiveness abounds, where old grudges are set aside, where divisions that we used to have between the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the male and the female, the young and the old, these are all washed away and there is now brother and sister united in one common call, as we say here, to share Jesus. That's good news. God's kingdom has come near. It is at hand, even as we anticipate the great day of its fulfillment, fulfillment when all things are restored and we see Jesus. And so then the Bible then begins these puzzling statements. Throughout the rest of the scriptures, we get these strange statements. John uh, 15, 18 is one of them. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What's that mean? Then again, Colossians 1.13, Paul speaking. So that was Jesus, this is Paul. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. First Peter, this is the Apostle Peter speaking, 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage, tight, which wage war against your soul. This is a slow, there we go, good. So what's all that mean? It means that in America, though we might say we're very much a part of the culture and the world and the things that are going on here and, and now, there is something distinct and separate about us. There's something that doesn't fit. We are residents, we might say, of this space and of this time, and yet there is something about us that is alien, 
Uh, we see in the world around us, in the culture around us, we see all kinds of, of things that, that we would categorize as the world, that there are priorities, there are stories, there are allegiances, there are, there are economies, there are, there are all kinds of things that, that are in opposition or at least not a part of God's ultimate plan for the world. And these things, God says, these things are passing away. These don't belong in the kingdom of God. They will not exist in the rule of God. They're passing Away, And that's that catch-all word, the, the world. We use that catch-all word to, to describe these, these things. And we are residents in that world, aren't we? We see it all around us. And yet the Bible says because of Christ, we no li- longer live according to the patterns. We no longer share the priorities. We no longer share the precepts, the patterns, the allegiances. Uh, we no longer share in all of the things that shape that world. We are now shaped by a new kind of world, a kingdom that is to come whose king is made manifest in Jesus as we are now the kingdom people those who are ruled by, by Jesus. And so uh, we read in Hebrews thirteen fourteen, and it reminds us we have no lasting city here. No lasting city here, but we seek a city that is to come, a new sky, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, as we read in Revelations chapters 20 through 22. And so we have something at work in us, at work around us, a hope, and a difference. Is everybody with me so far? Following along? Good. And so that's, that's, the, that's the heart of this series. And it has a Christian heart to it. But, but I want to look at Daniel. We're going to look at Daniel. Actually, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. If you've got your Bibles, please open them up. If you, you don't have your Bibles, uh, grab a pew Bible, whip out your phone, iPad, uh, Kindle, tablet, whatever you might have. Pull it out. Get there. Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 through 7. Because nowhere in the Bible is it maybe more plain. This battle between kingdoms. These battle between priorities. This battle between allegiances. Than it is made plain in the book of Daniel. As Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are together wrestling with how are we to be Jews? How are we to be uh, Israelites? How are we to remain true to God in the heart of empire? In the heart of Babylon. So this morning, um, we're going to look at uh, this chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And uh, Austin is actually going to read it for us. So go ahead and stand up, Austin, and, and read nice and loud for us. In the third year of the region of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the Articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Eshpenaz, king of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility young men without any physical defect. Handsome, showing up aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen, some from Judah, 
Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Sadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Now, what's going on in that text other than some names that are very difficult to pronounce? And you did admirably, my friend. Very good. Very good. What is happening in this text? I want to throw a map up here so you can kind of visualize what's going on. I mean, this is Egypt, and you have Greece and Italy over here. And here we have Saudi Arabia, or what is now Saudi Arabia down here. And this is the Neo-Babylonian Empire. This is the the place that we find Daniel. And you'll remember with me that this is the promised land, the the land that God covenanted with Israel. And he said, listen, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. I'm going to teach you how to live so that you can... You can be my people, and and, and because of that, if you're faithful to me, I will be faithful to you, and I will protect you, and I will guide you, and I will be with you. And yet immediately, almost immediately anyway, as we enter into the book of Judges and then 1 Samuel, the first eight chapters, we see a desire begin to build in the people of God, not to maintain the laws of God, not to maintain the kingship of God, but rather to be like everyone else. Young people, have you ever felt that way? Right? Be like everyone else. I remember that. Even today, we want to be like everyone else. We don't want to stand out. We, want to, we, want to, we see the good life that other people are living. And Israel saw the good life that other people were living. They said, we want that. And so they began to, to acclimate themselves to the world around them. To assimilate the practices of the people. To begin to practice everything that God had said, hey, listen, don't do that. You're my people. You're chosen. You're holy. You're separate. You're different. Because of this, God did remove the hedge of protection. And though this happens a few times, the final carrying away Babylon invades and takes Judea. And they burn down the temple and they take all of the good things out of there, including the young people. And they take the young people back to Babylon, back to the capital. And we read in this text that they begin to re-educate them. Re-educate them. What does that mean? Begin to re-educate them. Austin has an idea. I saw his hand go up. <laughs> what does it mean to re-educate them? It, it means that, that these, these young men had been raised in a culture, in a world, in a kingdom that was directly looking at God. They had in their minds and in their hearts and in their lives the laws and ways and, and the, the, the participation that one would have in keeping the ways of God. That would be in their mind, even though Israel itself had, had failed to practice that maybe as faithfully as they ought to. They still held and, and knew Torah. And so what Babylon has to do is they have to take all of that God stuff out and replace it with Babylonian stuff, right? That makes sense? Everybody with me? They're going to re-educate these kids. Now, how are they going to go about doing it? They're going to beat them up and throw them in jail and say, you'll be Babylonian or else. Are they going to sit them all down in a room and say, okay, now listen, children, right now we're going to mess with your noetic structure so we can realign your worldview so that it would be more Babylonian than Israelite? Probably not, right? They're not going to use violence and they're not going to use honesty. What are they going to do? Notice verse 5, what Austin had read. In verse 5 we read this, that the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. 
Imagine that. You're a, you're a refugee. You're, you know that you're an enemy of this nation. You've been captured from one place and you've been brought into another. And, and you're sitting there and you're wondering what's going to happen to me. I, I know that they've killed already tons of people. And you're brought into the courtroom of the king. And you're set down at his table. And the king says, the most powerful king, I mean in the whole world, this is the empire of the world. The powerful king says, here, have some of my pizza. Now, I've never had pizza with a king, but I assume it's better than whatever pizza I had in my life so far. I mean, th- this, is, this is the best of the best of the best, and it's being offered to me here. Have some of my Coke, since we have kids in here. So have some of my Coke, right? This is the best Coke that you... I mean, you're sitting down with the king of the world, and he offers from his table to you. Wow. That would be hard to say no to, wouldn't it? I mean... I would have a hard time with that. What happens next? They were, this is the second half of verse 5 there. They were educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. They're, they're told as they're sitting down at this table, they say, hey, listen, we want to educate you. We want to send you to college. Not a dime. Don't worry about it. We'll be right here in the royal palace. And after you've been fully educated, we're going to bring you before the king, which isn't just to say, hey, the king wants to take a look at you. It's the king is going to bestow upon you authority, power. You are going to be given a privileged position. Now imagine this. Imagine living in the royal palace. Are you walking around in in like shabby clothes? No, you are wearing the best of the best. And they bring you into these rooms, ornate, beautiful rooms. And they sit you down at a table. And the wisest men in the world begin to educate you and teach you. And you know that as you learn for these three years, at the end I'm going to stand before the king. And the king is going to say, you're going to govern in my name. Wow, that's a tempting offer. I don't, I don't know what Daniel or any of these other men might have experienced here in little old Judah, but I can guarantee you this. It was nothing compared to what they were being offered in Babylon. Nothing. And so we have this interesting problem then. What, what's going to happen to them? And I, you know, I can't, stop, I can't help but stop and hear this story and think, man, has anything changed in our world. I mean, is that, is that different than our experiences today? I, it, it seems like it's, it's the same, same thing going on, uh, the same kind of problems. And, and uh, it's interesting, you know, because we're, we're tempted, I think, to just think of this as a story that happened to them. But Revelation doesn't think of it this way. Revelation describes uh, this as being the exact same thing happening to the Christians in those days. They use the word Babylon. And the, the, the great emperor with his temptation in chapter 13 and his great religion again in chapter 13 and then the great economy in chapter 17. And these great temptations that are pulling people away and as we'll read way later on uh, in these texts, this, this, this thing that people have just gotten drunk on it. They've just soaked it in and it has, has formed them. It has shaped them. It has made them. And the same seductive call comes to us today. It's interesting because it takes a different shape, of course. It takes a different shape, but the temptation is still the same. It's interesting. I, I heard a quote from Steve Jobs this week. Everybody know who he is? Yes, right? Eric, boo. (laughs) Not an Apple guy. Steve Jobs said this. He said, you don't know what you want until I show it to you. Is that wrong? 
I, 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 don't, think, I don't think that's wrong. I, I think that's actually incredibly astute. That is, that is that we're not unhappy with our bodies until we see the miracle cream that will make the wrinkles go away. But we're not unhappy with our clothes until we turn the page in the magazine and we realize, man, I look like shabby. We're not unhappy with our spouse until we see that sex scene on the movie or until we see that romantic comedy. We're not unhappy until we're shown something different. You know, you don't need anything to go to the mall because the mall, that gracious host, will provide you the need you didn't know you had. Isn't it great? We have these priorities, these allegiances, these hungers, these desires, and we have a world that says we can fill it. We can fill it. That sits before us in the same way Babylon offered Daniel everything he could want on a silver platter. What's Daniel going to do? Our next, uh, our next text is going to be read by Morgan uh, from Daniel chapter 1. Please follow along in your Bibles, verses 8 through 16. Go ahead. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men in your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their food choice and the wine they had to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Thank you. Good. Um, I want to pause like, and just take a step to the side, just because this is me being a cranky old man. Uh, notice the hap- what happens to Daniel and them as they eat the food. Do they get skinnier or fatter? Fatter, Right? They look fatter. They look healthier. They look more alive. They're bigger, right? They're not skinnier. So anybody who tries to sell you a book or a diet plan based on Daniel, please spit in there. I mean, (laughs) please tell them no thank you. That not only completely is like tearing this text to shreds and making it something else we can market, but it also is just not what happens <laughs> in the text. They're fatter. In fact, literally the word here for literal, it is they were fatter. So, um, you know, not that you shouldn't be a vegetarian, Jessica. Although they didn't have bokas back then. So, right? Anyway. Just saying. So I immediately noticed the conviction mixed with humility that Daniel has in the text that Morgan read for us. You know, this, 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 he doesn't come in swinging a club. He doesn't say, hey, listen, I'm not doing this. You guys are all going to hell. He's, he, he looks at himself and he looks at his own life and he says, this is what I need to do. And he goes in humility to this steward who is in charge over him. And he says, listen, please don't make me defile myself. And I, I find some comfort in, actually find conviction, I should say, in this. 
Because all of us, whether it's the government or your boss or your parents, all of us have somebody over us who we don't always get along with. And yet Daniel goes in submission to this man and says, please, you know, preserve me from this defilement. And, 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 and the steward takes notice. Now, what is Daniel worried about? What does defilement mean in this text? What's, what's happening? What's he afraid of? And I think to some extent, um, he is worried about, um, about holiness, He's concerned, although we know throughout this text that because of the way that it's shaped, because it's about food and wine and then becomes vegetables and water, it's not specifically talking about an Old Testament law. There's no law that says you can't eat meat from the Nebuchadnezzar's table. There's no law that says you can't drink wine from Nebuchadnezzar's table. That's not in the Old Testament. And so something else is going on here. But I think we would say at a minimum that Daniel is afraid of drawing near to something that would offend God. And so he asked the eunuch to preserve him from that, and I gotta stop and just ask you, do you feel convicted by that? Because I do. Because what is our tendency? It is to say, it isn't to say, well, God might be offended by this, or I probably shouldn't watch this because it might lead me to sin, or I might offend the living and holy God. Instead, we equivocate, we make excuses, we find ways around those those things, and we say, well, you know, that's a gray area. We say, well, you know, that, that's, a, that's a matter of opinion. Or we say, well, you know, don't judge lest ye be judged. Rather than treating God as a holy and fearsome God, one whom we are so afraid of transgressing that we draw new lines in the sand between us and the world. Not because it's a law, not because you have to, not because it says it in the Bible, but because you want to preserve your holiness before God. So you say to this or that thing, you know, I, that might lead me into mischief or trouble. I don't think I'll do that. When was the last time we took on that attitude? I, I, was, just, I was reading this and I was, just, I was struck by that. I was thinking then of, of, these, of these verses um, from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, which says, You ought to live a holy and godly life as you look forward to the day of God and you speed its coming. Or Ephesians 4.1, where Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. And this is important because Paul is saying, I'm in jail for all of this stuff. I'm suffering. You're at home. You're still, I mean, I know it's only like Myers take and bake pizza, but you're still eating pizza. I'm in jail, and I'm saying, I haven't given in. I haven't stopped living this way, and I'm urging you Live the calling to which you have been called. That's a powerful word. Are we living like that? Is that that our heart? Is that our heart? You know, but Daniel, um, in his resistance to defilement, is not simply thinking about his own personal piety. He's thinking about his formation. What does it look like to be formed into a righteous man or woman? What does it look like to be somebody who is uniquely set apart? Your whole body, mind, life, everything you touch, set apart for God's service. What's that look like and how do we accomplish that? Because Daniel understands here and he's making that statement maybe more than anything else. He's making the statement between these two types of food. He's saying, I don't eat from the king's table because I am not the king's man. 
I'm a resident, but I'm an alien. I don't belong here. I am not Babylonian. And though I may serve you, though I may be humble before you, though I may even pray for you, I will not bow to you. And there's that strong conviction going out because he recognizes. And this is why it's so innocuous because it, it's, not, it's not the food that's the problem. It's what the food produces that's a problem. It's not all of these things that we've talked about. It's not, it's not the economies or the governments or the, the different priorities. It's not our hobbies. It's not our desires. It's not the mall as we talked about. It's not Steve Jobs or an iPad or an Apple or whatever. It's not those things that are the problem. It's what they produce in our lives that's the danger. That's the problem. If the question isn't, is this a right and wrong? Listen, that's the point. Uh, again, this is off. That's the point that Paul is getting at when he says he's removed the tablet of stone or the stone heart, stone heart from us. And he has given us a heart of flesh. He's breathed our spirit into us. He's given us not a law of tablets, not a list of right and wrongs. He's asked you to grow up. Children need lists of right and wrong, right? Yes? Children need, please, I'm, I'm actually saying something to you, parents. Children need right and wrong lists. Adults don't. Adults need principles. To an adult, you can say, God is a holy God. Live like that. You have the spirit in your heart to pull or push or move or warn. Listen to that. And so what Paul is really getting at in Galatians is, hey, listen, guys, grow up. Stop living in unholiness. I don't need to make a list of do's and don'ts because you guys need to grow up and recognize life following God. And Daniel is doing this. This is, this is what he's after. This is why he sets, sets himself apart in this way because he knows that one step becomes two steps and two steps become... and three steps become... I'm going to keep going until I hear you all. Four steps become... steps, six, five steps become... right? And pretty soon, you don't even realize... You're a Babylonian. Yes? Pretty soon you don't even realize that it's happened to you. And the problem with that too is that once you can't realize it anymore, how are you ever going to correct it? You need an act of God. And God acts like that sometimes, but sometimes he doesn't. Which is the warning to us people. It's the warning to us that Daniel has given us. And yes, vegetables are arbitrary. That's a really, you know, it, it's, it's Daniel's just sort of setting things apart with no particular point other than to say that it sets him apart. And God does this all the time. He did this in Deuteronomy. He says, you, shouldn't, you should make for yourselves tassels on your coat. and Don't mix cloths together. I mean, what's the point of having four tassels on your coat? It looks ridiculous. That's the point. That people saw four tassels on the, on the cloak and said, that's a Jew. It's not a, it's not a moral, ethical decision. In the great history of moral, moral and ethical reasoning, no one's ever asked, well, is it just or unjust to have four tassels on your cloak? But God says, do it because you are my marked people. Set yourselves apart. And so they did it. Now, I don't blame God for outlawing polyester, but, uh, you know, those things happen. Daniel is saying in this moment... I am not Babylonian. And I think this leads me to the question, church. How do we say we're not Babylonians? How do we set ourselves apart? 
Which leads to then the scarier question of, do we set ourselves apart? Which then, I have to take it a little deeper and say to you as individuals, how do you as an individual or as a family maybe, how do you set yourselves apart? How do you draw the line and show that you're not a Babylonian to your children who are sitting there watching every single move? To your grandchildren who are watching every single move? To your neighbors, to the unbelievers who you want to rescue and save and bring into this kingdom with you so they can experience the first fruits of the dead, which is you. How do you show you are not Babylonian? And that's that, that's that question, I think, that sits as I read this book of Daniel, as I experience conviction in it, this deep and abiding conviction, which I think Daniel is supposed to bring out in all of us all the time. I imagine you've noticed I've flashed a few ads up there. Yes. I think I'm done with them. Yep, that was a, the pretty girl was the last one. You know, what's interesting about all of those ads is that that's our life, isn't it? You're watching TV, you're looking at a magazine, you're standing in an elevator, you're walking, you know, down the street, you're driving. Like, where do you get away from these sort of, these images? Bum, 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 bum. You're on Facebook, flitting through, seeing people talk about what they bought or getting their selfies in or, you know, advertisement for this or, hey, click like on ODCC's picture. No, do that one. Do that one. I mean, our, our lives are a jumble of advertisements and self-aggrandizement and images over and over and over and over and over again. And the problem is not the images. The problem is not the advertising. The problem might be the self-aggrandizement, but the issue is not those things, but what they produce in us. And if you think they don't produce something in you, then you're not paying attention. Or perhaps you're so Babylonian now that you've forgotten what it is to eat real food and drink real living water. You should see that, those things up there, that, that, uh, that first ad that I had, uh, the American Eagle thing, like live your, be yourself, like live, what did it say? I forgot. Live your life. American Eagle is going to help you live your life in their clothes. Right? Because you're not living your life if you're not in their clothes. Right? Pop open that uh, bottle of Coke. Because you open happiness in a bottle of Coke. Here you think to yourself, well, I've been happy drinking Coke before, but Coke runs out pretty quick, doesn't it? A picture of this last lady. We don't need to talk about body image and what Emery is going to be raised thinking she has to do to her face and to herself in order to be appealing. What do we teach What do we teach? What do we shape? We shape hunger. We shape desire. We shape importance. We shape priorities. We shape allegiances. And we've only touched the surface of the stuff that the world is is presenting to us and using to shape and mold every single one of you. I couldn't help but think cheesy when I saw the NFL ad. Is it Monday yet? And wondered how many of us have ever said, is it? Thank you. Some of you have been in church long enough to think cheesy with me. Is it Sunday yet? Right? I, I just thought that. You know, like, when's the last time we, we hunger for a day? You hunger for a moment. You hunger for, for something that's going to be so great, so wonderful. Is it worship? Is it worship? You know, we are being made into something here, folks. 
And my challenge to you this morning as we begin this series talking about resident aliens, talking about Daniel himself, is to ask the question and not to draw lines, well, that was Daniel or that was the church or that was Jesus, but to say, no, it's you. You. And the empire still wants you. It still wants to pull you in. It still wants to acclimate you. It still wants to re-educate you. It still wants to make you into its own image. And Jesus says, no, no. You belong to me. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. After this I saw another, and coming down from heaven, a great authority. And the heaven was made bright with his glory, and with a mighty voice he called out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become the dwelling place of demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk on the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. 2,000 years ago, is it different today? Then I heard... A voice from heaven saying this, Come out, my people. Come out, my people. Lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Come out, my people. Come out. And I can't help but think, of Isaiah 55, verse 1, which uh, echoes the same kind of call, this, this come out, come everyone who thirsts, come to waters, come to living waters, Jesus says, come he who has no money, come and buy. He who has no money, come and buy without price because the world wants to commodify you. It wants to commodify everything. It wants to make you valuable in its sight so that it can then take and extract what it wants from you. This is the desire of the world. And we can talk about all kinds of worldliness. We can talk about economies or governments or, or companies or, or powers or even sometimes your own flesh and blood. We see all of this worldliness and it's calling to you and it says, I can fill the void. The thing I've noticed about the mall, though, you can correct me if you're wrong, but the thing that I've noticed about the mall in my family is that... Uh, is that after a few weeks, you want to go back, right? Like somehow it didn't fill that void, or somehow I got that iPhone, that Galaxy 5 that I so desperately wanted, and then I realized they came out with a bigger screen. A year later, I didn't know I wanted it. I wanted it so bad. I did want it so bad, didn't I? Eric could testify, I wanted it so bad. We want and we desire, and the world says, I've got these desires. I can fill that hole. I can meet that need. I can satiate that hunger. And yet always, 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 what? The hunger comes back. It's not insignificant that Jesus met a woman at the well, and he said, would you give me a drink of water? And she said, you don't have anything to to get, get water from. How could you get water? How could you give me water? He says, if you knew who you asked, you would ask me for water, 
And you would have water that springs up, living water. It never runs out. It never grows dry. It always fills. This woman who had had many marriages and the man she was with at that time was not her husband, seeking to fill the void, seeking to fill the hunger, seeking to meet the need, seeking to to be happy. And yet she couldn't find it until she met Jesus. And the difference here this morning, this difference in this worship service, in this moment on the hour, which is why I believe so much in the gathering of the saints, the difference this morning that you won't find anywhere else in your week is that we're not looking to sell you anything. We're inviting. And you can accept the invitation or you can refuse the invitation. We'll love you the same either way. I love the way Revelation ends. After all is said and done, after all the judgment has been portrayed on the sin of the world, after the dead have been raised and given incorruptible, immortal bodies, after God has rested in their midst, and because of his holiness and presence, there is no longer tears in our eyes, for he himself wipes them away as the church, as the church gathers to sing praises before the one who made, redeemed, restored, and gave them that living water. After all of that is said and done and displayed for the world, we come to these words, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let the one who hears, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires, take the water of life without price. For that is the heart of the gospel. You can't buy it. You can't have it. You can't steal it. But you can receive it. You can receive it. And church, the question for you today is, have you received it? Or have we become one with the world? And don't you dare sit in your chair this morning and and let that kind of ruminate in your mind and go home all happy. No, don't let it. Because you'll convince yourself you're, you're all good, won't you? Yes, you will. Ask your spouse, ask your children, ask the church around you, ask one another. How have we given in? Because we are made for so much more. So much more than is being offered us. Let us never accept less than God has in store for us. So sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. And don't leave this place today without searching your heart and searching your spouse's heart and searching your neighbor's heart and keep one another accountable and ask and seek and come. Come to the waters of life. Come to the waters of life. You are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. And God himself invites you to come. Consider that as we stand and sing.